Chapter 18 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 The Wonders of Terrestrial Depths. At eight in the morning, a ray of daylight came to wake us up. The thousand shining surfaces of lava on the walls received it on its passage and scattered it like a shower of sparks. There was light enough to distinguish surrounding objects. Well, Axel, what do you say to it? cried my uncle, rubbing his hands. Did you ever spend a quieter night in our little house at Königsberg? No noise of cartwheels, no cries of basket women, no boatmen shouting. No doubt it is very quiet at the bottom of this well, but there is something alarming in the quietness itself. Now come, my uncle cried. If you are frightened already, what will you be by and by? We have not gone a single inch yet into the bowels of the earth." "'What do you mean?' "'I mean that we have only reached the level of the island, long vertical tube, which terminates at the mouth of the crater, has its lower end only at the level of the sea.' "'Are you sure of that?' "'Quite sure. Consult the barometer.' In fact, the mercury, which had risen in the instrument as fast as we descended, had stopped at twenty-nine inches. "'You see?' said the professor, we have now only the pressure of our atmosphere, and I shall be glad when the aneroid takes the place of the barometer." And in truth, this instrument will become useless as soon as the weight of the atmosphere should exceed the pressure ascertained at the level of the sea. But, I said, is there not reason to fear that this ever-increasing pressure will become at last very painful to bear? No, we shall descend at a slow rate and our lungs will become inured to a denser atmosphere. Aeronauts find the want of air as they rise to high elevations, but we shall perhaps have too much. Of the two, this is what I should prefer. Don't let us lose a moment. Where is the bundle we sent down before us?" I then remembered that we had searched for it in vain the evening before. My uncle questioned Hans, who, after having examined attentively with the eye of a huntsman, replied, Der Hupe up there. And so it was. The bundle had been caught by a projection a hundred feet above us. Immediately the Icelander climbed up like a cat, and in a few minutes the package was in our possession. "'Now,' said my uncle, "'let us breakfast. But we must lay in a good stock, for we don't know how long we may have to go on.' The biscuit and extract of meat were washed down with a draught of water mingled with a little gin. Breakfast over, my uncle drew from his pocket a small notebook, intended for scientific observations. He consulted his instruments and recorded, Monday, July 1st. Chronometer, 8.17 a.m. Barometer, 297 inches. Thermometer, 6 degrees. Direction, east-southeast. This last observation applied to the dark gallery, and was indicated by the compass. Now, Axel! cried the professor with enthusiasm. Now we are really going into the interior of the earth. At this precise moment the journey commences." So saying, my uncle took in one hand Rumkorff's apparatus, which was hanging from his neck, and with the other he formed an electric communication with the coil in the lantern, and a sufficiently bright light dispersed the darkness of the passage. Hans carried the other apparatus, which was also put into action. This ingenious application of electricity would enable us to go on for a long time, by creating an artificial light even in the midst of the most inflammable gases. 
Now march! cried my uncle. Each shouldered his package. Hans drove before him the load of cords and clothes, and myself walking last, we entered the gallery. At the moment of becoming engulfed in this dark gallery, I raised my head and saw for the last time through the length of that vast tube the sky of Iceland, which I was never to behold again. The lava, in the last eruption of 1229, had forced a passage through this tunnel. It still lined the walls with a thick and glistening coat. The electric light was here intensified a hundredfold by reflection. The only difficulty in proceeding lay in not sliding too fast down an incline of about forty-five degrees. Happily certain asperities and a few blisterings here and there formed steps, and we descended, letting our baggage slip before us from the end of a long rope. But that which formed steps under our feet became stalactites overhead. The lava, which was porous in many places, had formed a surface covered with small rounded blisters, crystals of opaque quartz, set with limpid tiers of glass, and hanging like clustered chandeliers from the vaulted roof, seemed as if we were to kindle and form a sudden illumination as we passed on our way. It seemed as if the genie of the depths were lighting up their palace to receive their terrestrial guests. "'It is magnificent!' I cried spontaneously. "'My uncle, what a sight! Don't you admire those blending hues of lava, passing from reddish-brown to bright yellow by imperceptible shades? And these crystals are just like globes of light!' Ah, you think so, do you, Axel, my boy? Well, you will see greater splendors than these, I hope. Now let us march, march!" He had better have said slide, for we did nothing but drop down the steep inclines. It was the facifs descensus Averni of Virgil. The compass, which I consulted frequently, gave our direction as southeast with inflexible steadiness. This lava stream deviated neither to the right nor to the left yet there was no sensible increase of temperature. This justified Davy's theory, and more than once I consulted the thermometer with surprise. Two hours after our departure it only marked ten degrees, an increase of only four degrees. This gave reason for believing that our descent was more horizontal than vertical. As for the exact depth reached, it was very easy to ascertain that. The professor measured accurately the angles of deviation and inclination on the road, but he kept the results to himself. About eight in the evening he signaled to stop. Hans sat down at once. The lamps were hung upon a projection in the lava. We were in a sort of cavern where there was plenty of air. Certain puffs of air reached us. What atmospheric disturbance was the cause of them, I could not answer that question at the moment. Hunger and fatigue made me incapable of reasoning. A descent of seven hours consecutively is not made without considerable expenditure of strength. I was exhausted. The order to halt, therefore, gave me pleasure. Hans laid our provisions upon a block of lava, and we ate with a good appetite. But one thing troubled me. Our supply of water was half consumed. My uncle reckoned upon a fresh supply from subterranean sources but hitherto we had met with none. I could not help drawing his attention to this circumstance. "'Are you surprised at this want of springs?' he said. "'More than that. I am anxious about it. We have only water enough for five days.' "'Don't be uneasy, Axel. We shall find more than we want.' "'When?' 
when we have left this bed of lava behind us? How could springs break through such walls as these? But perhaps this passage runs to a very great depth. It seems to me that we have made no great progress vertically. Why do you suppose that? Because if we had gone deep into the crust of the earth we should have encountered greater heat. According to your system, said my uncle, but what does the thermometer say? Hardly fifteen degrees, nine degrees only since our departure. Well, what is your conclusion? This is my conclusion. According to exact observations, the increase of temperature in the interior of the globe advances at the rate of one degree for every hundred feet, but certain local conditions may modify this rate. Thus, at Yakutsk in Siberia, the increase of a degree is ascertained to be reached every thirty-six feet. This difference depends upon the heat-conducting power of the rocks. Moreover, in the neighborhood of an extinct volcano, through Nice, it has been observed that the increase of a degree is only attained at every one hundred twenty-five feet. Let us therefore assume this last hypothesis is the most suitable to our situation and calculate." "'Well, do calculate, my boy.' "'Nothing is easier,' said I, putting down figures in my notebook. Nine times a hundred and twenty-five feet gives a depth of eleven hundred and twenty-five feet. Very accurate indeed. Well? By my observation we are at ten thousand feet below the level of the sea. Is that possible? Yes, or figures are of no use. The professor's calculations were quite correct. We had already attained a depth of six thousand feet beyond that hitherto reached by the foot of man, such as the mines of Kitzbald in Tyrol, and those of Wittenberg in Bohemia. The temperature, which ought to have been eighty-one degrees, was scarcely fifteen. Here was cause for reflection. End of chapter 18《Of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth》by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 Geological Studies in Situ Next day, Tuesday, June 30, at 6 a.m., the descent began again. We were still following the gallery of lava, a real natural staircase and as gently sloping as those inclined planes which in some old houses are still found instead of flights of steps. And so we went on until twelve-seventeen, the precise moment when we overtook Hans, who had stopped. "'Ah, here we are!' exclaimed my uncle. "'At the very end of the chimney!' I looked around me. We were standing at the intersection of two roads, both dark and narrow. Which were we to take? This was a difficulty. Still my uncle refused to admit an appearance of hesitation, either before me or the guide. He pointed out the eastern tunnel, and we were soon all three in it. Besides, there would have been interminable hesitation before this choice of roads, for since there was no indication whatever to guide our choice, we were obliged to trust to chance. The slope of this gallery was scarcely perceptible, and its sections were very unequal. Sometimes we passed a series of arches succeeding each other, like the majestic arcades of a Gothic cathedral. Here the architects of the Middle Ages might have found studies for every form of the sacred art which sprang from the development of the pointed arch. 
a mile farther we had to bow our heads under corniced elliptic arches, in the Romanesque style. And massive pillars standing out from the wall bent under the spring of the vault that rested heavily upon them. In other places this magnificence gave way to narrow channels between low structures, which looked like beavers' huts, and we had to creep along through extremely narrow passages. The heat was perfectly bearable. Involuntarily I began to think of its heat when the lava thrown out by Snefel was boiling and working through this now silent road. I imagined the torrents of fire hurled back at every angle in the gallery, and the accumulation of intensely heated vapors in the midst of this confined channel. I only hope, thought I, that this so-called extinct volcano wouldn't take a fancy in his old age to begin his sports again. I abstained from communicating these fears to Professor Liedenbrock. He would never have understood them at all. He had but one idea, forward. He walked, he slid, he scrambled, he tumbled, with a persistency which one could not but admire. By six in the evening, after a not very fatiguing walk, we had gone two leagues south, but scarcely a quarter of a mile down. My uncle said it was time to go to sleep. We ate without talking and went to sleep without reflection. Our arrangements for the night were very simple. A railway rug each into which we rolled ourselves was our sole covering. We had neither cold nor intrusive visits to fear. Travellers who penetrate into the wilds of Central Africa and into the pathless forests of the New World are obliged to watch over each other by night. But we enjoyed absolute safety and utter seclusion. No savages or wild beasts infested these silent depths. Next morning we awoke fresh and in good spirits. The road was resumed. As the day before, we followed the path of the lava. It was impossible to tell what rocks we were passing. The tunnel, instead of tending lower, approached more and more nearly to a horizontal direction. I even fancied a slight rise. But about ten this upward tendency became so evident, and therefore so fatiguing, that I was obliged to slacken my pace. "'Well, Axel?' demanded the professor impatiently. "'Well, I cannot stand it any longer,' I replied. "'What, after three hours' walk over such easy ground? It may be easy, but it is tiring all the same. What, when we have nothing to do but keep going down—going up, if you please?' "'Going up,' said my uncle with a shrug. No doubt. For the last half-hour the inclines have gone the other way, and at this rate we shall soon arrive upon the level soil of Iceland." The professor nodded slowly and uneasily, like a man that declines to be convinced. I tried to resume the conversation. He answered not a word, and gave the signal for a start. I saw that his silence was nothing but ill-humour. Still, I had courageously shouldered my burden again, and was rapidly following Hans, whom my uncle preceded. I was anxious not to be left behind. My greatest care was not to lose sight of my companions. I shuddered at the thought of being lost in the mazes of this vast subterranean labyrinth. Besides, if the ascending road did become steeper, I was comforted with the thought that it was bringing us nearer to the surface. There was hope in this. Every step confirmed me in it, and I was rejoicing at the thought of meeting my little Grauben again. 
By midday there was a change in the appearance of this wall of the gallery. I noticed it by a diminution of the amount of light reflected from the sides. Solid rock was appearing in the place of the lava coating. The mass was composed of inclined and sometimes vertical strata. We were passing through rocks of the transition or Silurian system. "'It is evident,' I cried, "'the marine deposits formed in the second period, the shales, limestones, and sandstones. We are turning away from the primary granite. We are just as if we were people of Hamburg going to Lübeck by way of Hanover.' I had better have kept my observations to myself. But my geological instinct was stronger than my prudence, and Uncle Liedenbrock heard my exclamation. "'What's that you are saying?' he asked. "'See,' I said, pointing to the varied series of sandstones and limestones and the first indication of slate. "'Well?' "'We are at the period when the first plants and animals appeared.' "'Do you think so?' "'Look close and examine.' I obliged the professor to move his lamp over the walls of the gallery. I expected some signs of astonishment, but he spoke not a word and went on. Had he understood me or not? Did he refuse to admit, out of self-love as an uncle and a philosopher, that he had mistaken his way when he chose the eastern tunnel, or was he determined to examine this passage to his farthest extremity? It was evident that we had left the lava-path and that this road could not possibly lead to the extinct furnace of Snaffel. Yet I asked myself if I was not depending too much on this change in the rock. Might I not myself be mistaken? Were we really crossing the layers of rock which overlie the granite foundation? If I am right, I thought, I must soon find some fossil remains of primitive life, and then we must yield to evidence. I will look. I had not gone a hundred paces before incontestable proofs presented themselves. It could not be otherwise, for in the Silurian age the seas contained at least fifteen hundred vegetable and animal species. My feet, which had become accustomed to the indurated lava floor, suddenly rested upon a dust composed of the debris of plants and shells. In the walls were distinct impressions of fucoids and lycopodites. Professor Liedenbrock could not be mistaken, I thought, and yet he pushed on, with, I suppose, his eyes resolutely shut. This was only invincible obstinacy. I could hold out no longer. I picked out a perfectly formed shell, which had belonged to an animal not unlike the woodlouse. Then, joining my uncle, I said, "'Look at this.' "'Very well,' said he quietly. "'It is the shell of a crustacean, of an extinct species called a trilobite.' nothing more. But don't you conclude? Just what you conclude yourself. Yes, I do perfectly. We have left the granite and the lava. It is possible that I may be mistaken, but I cannot be sure of that until I have reached the very end of this gallery. You are right in doing this, my uncle, and I should quite approve of your determination, if there were not a danger threatening us nearer and nearer. What danger? The want of water." Well, Axel, we will put ourselves upon rations. End of chapter 19
Chapter 20 The First Signs of Distress In fact, we had to ration ourselves. Our provision of water could not last more than three days. I found that out for certain when supper-time came, and to our sorrow we had little reason to expect to find a spring in these transition beds. The whole of the next day the gallery opened before us its endless arcades. We moved on almost without a word. Han's silence seemed to be infecting us. The road was now not ascending, at least not perceptibly. Sometimes, even, it seemed to have a slight fall. But this tendency, which was very trifling, could not do anything to reassure the professor, for there was no change in the beds, and the transitional characteristics became more and more decided. The electric light was reflected in sparkling splendor from the schist, limestone, and old red sandstone of the walls. It might have been thought that we were passing through a section of Wales, of which an ancient people gave its name to this system. Specimens of magnificent marbles clothed the walls, some of a grayish agate fantastically veined with white, others of rich crimson or yellow dashed with splotches of red. Then came dark cherry-colored marbles relieved by the lighter tints of limestone. The greater part of these bore impressions of primitive organisms. Creation had evidently advanced since the day before. Instead of rudimentary trilobites, I noticed remains of a more perfect order of beings, amongst others ganoid fishes, and some of those sauroids in which paleontologists have discovered the earliest reptile forms. The Devonian seas were peopled by animals of these species, and deposited them by thousands in the rocks of the newer formation. It was evident that we were ascending that scale of animal life in which man fills the highest place, but Professor Liedenbrock seemed not to notice it. He was awaiting one of two events, either the appearance of a vertical well opening before his feet down which our descent might be resumed, or that of some obstacle which should effectually turn us back on our own footsteps. But evening came, and neither wish was gratified. On Friday, after a night during which I felt pangs of thirst, our little troop again plunged into the winding passages of the gallery. After ten hours' walking I observed a singular deadening of the reflection of our lamps on the side-walls. The marble, the schist, the limestone, and the sandstone were giving way to a dark and lusterless lining. At one moment, the tunnel becoming very narrow, I leaned against the wall. When I removed my hand it was black. I looked nearer and found we were in a coal formation. "'A coal-mine!' I cried. "'A mine without miners!' my uncle replied. "'Who knows?' I asked. "'I know,' the professor pronounced decidedly. "'I am certain that this gallery driven through beds of coal was never pierced by the hand of man. But whether it be the hand of nature or not does not matter. Supper-time is come. Let us sup.' Hans prepared some food. I scarcely ate, and I swallowed down the few drops of water rationed out to me. One flask half full was all we had left to slake the thirst of three men. After their meal my two companions laid themselves down upon their rugs, and found in sleep a solace for their fatigue. But I could not sleep, and I counted every hour until morning. On Saturday at six we started afresh. In twenty minutes we reached a vast open space. I then knew that the hand of man had not hollowed out this mine. The vaults would have been shored up, 
and as it was, they seemed to be held up by a miracle of equilibrium. This cavern was about a hundred feet wide and a hundred and fifty in height. A large mass had been rent asunder by a subterranean disturbance. Yielding to some vast power from below, it had broken asunder, leaving this great hollow into which human beings were now penetrating for the first time. The whole history of the Carboniferous period was written upon these gloomy walls, and a geologist might with ease trace all its diverse phases. The beds of coal were separated by strata of sandstone or compact clays, and appeared crushed under the weight of overlaying strata. At the age of the world which preceded the secondary period, the earth was clothed with immense vegetable forms, the product of the double influence of tropical heat and constant moisture. A vapory atmosphere surrounded the earth, still veiling the direct rays of the sun. Thence arises the conclusion that the high temperature then existing was due to some other source than the heat of the sun. Perhaps even the orb of day may not have been ready yet to play the splendid part he now acts. There were no climates as yet, and a torrid heat, equal from pole to equator, was spread over the whole surface of the globe. Whence this heat? Was it from the interior of the earth? Notwithstanding the theories of Professor Liedenbrock, a violent heat did at that time brood within the body of the spheroid. Its action was felt to the very last coats of the terrestrial crust. The plants, unacquainted with the beneficent influences of the sun, yielded neither flowers nor scent. But the roots drew vigorous life from the burning soil of the early days of this planet. There were but few trees. Herbaceous plants alone existed. There were tall grasses, ferns, lycopods, besides sigillaria, asterophyllites, now scarce plants, but then the species might be counted by thousands. The coal measures owe their origin to this period of profuse vegetation. The yet elastic and yielding crust of the earth obeyed the fluid forces beneath. Thence innumerable fissures and depressions. The plants, sunk underneath the waters, formed by degrees into vast accumulated masses. Then came the chemical action of nature. In the depths of the seas, the vegetable accumulations first became peat, then, acted upon by generated gases and the heat of fermentation, they underwent a process of complete mineralization. Thus were formed those immense coal-fields, which nevertheless are not inexhaustible and which three centuries at the present accelerated rate of consumption will exhaust unless the industrial world will devise a remedy. These reflections came into my mind whilst I was contemplating the general wealth stored up in this portion of the globe. These, no doubt, I thought, will never be discovered. The working of such deep mines would involve too large an outlay, and where would be the use as long as coal is yet spread far and wide near the surface? Such as my eyes behold these virgin stores, such they will be when this world comes to an end. But still we marched on, and I alone was forgetting the length of the way by losing myself in the midst of geological contemplations. The temperature remained what it had been during our passage during the lava and schists. Only my sense of smell was forcibly affected by an odor of protocarburate of hydrogen. I immediately recognized in this gallery the presence of a considerable quantity of the dangerous gas called by miners fire-damp, the explosion of which has often occasioned such dreadful catastrophes. Happily, our light was from Rumkorff's ingenious apparatus. 
if, unfortunately, we had explored this gallery with torches, a terrible explosion would have put an end to travelling and travellers at one stroke. This excursion through the coal-mine lasted till night. My uncle scarcely could restrain his impatience at the horizontal road. The darkness, always deep twenty yards before us, prevented us from estimating the length of the gallery, and I was beginning to think it must be endless, when suddenly, at six o'clock, a wall very unexpectedly stood before us. Right or left, top or bottom, there was no road farther. We were at the end of a blind alley. "'Very well. It's all right,' cried my uncle. "'Now, at any rate, we shall know what we are about. We are not in Sacknessum's road, and all we have to do is to go back. Let us take a night's rest, and in three days we shall get to the fork in the road.' "'Yes,' said I, "'if we have any strength left.' "'Why not?' "'Because to-morrow we shall have no water.' "'No courage, either?' asked my uncle severely. I dared make no answer. End of chapter 20「Compassion Fuses the Professor's Heart Next day we started early. We had to hasten forward. It was a three days' march to the crossroads. I will not speak of the sufferings we endured in our return. My uncle bore them with the angry impatience of a man obliged to his own weakness, Hans with the resignation of his passive nature, I, I confess, with complaints and expressions of despair. I had no spirit to oppose this ill fortune. As I had foretold, the water failed entirely by the end of the first day's retrograde march. Our fluid element was now nothing but gin, but this infernal fluid burned my throat and I could not even endure the sight of it. I found the temperature in the air stifling. Fatigue paralyzed my limbs. More than once I dropped down motionless. Then there was a halt, and my uncle and the Icelander did their best to restore me. But I saw that the former was struggling painfully against excessive fatigue and the tortures of thirst. At last, on Tuesday, July 8th, we arrived on our hands and knees, and half dead, at the junction of the two roads. There I dropped like a lifeless lump, extended on the lava soil. It was ten in the morning. Hans and my uncle, clinging to the wall, tried to nibble a few bits of biscuit. Long moans escaped from my swollen lips. After some time my uncle approached me and raised me in his arms. "'Poor boy!' said he, in genuine tones of compassion. I was touched with these words, not being accustomed to see the excitable professor in a softened mood. I grasped his trembling hands in mine. He let me hold them and looked at me. His eyes were moistened. Then I saw him take the flask that was hanging at his side. To my amazement he placed it on my lips. "'Drink,' said he. Had I heard him? Was my uncle beside himself? I stared at him stupidly, and felt as if I could not understand him. "'Drink!' he said again. And raising his flask, he emptied it every drop between my lips. 
Oh, infinite pleasure! A slender sip of water came to moisten my burning mouth. It was but one sip, but it was enough to recall my ebbing life. I thanked my uncle with clasped hands. Yes, he said, a draught of water. But it is the very last, you hear, the last. I had kept it as a precious treasure at the bottom of my flask. Twenty times, nay, a hundred times, have I fought against a frightful impulse to drink it off. But no, Axel, I kept it for you. My dear uncle, I said, whilst hot tears trickled down my face. Yes, my poor boy, I knew that as soon as you arrived at these crossroads you would drop half dead, and I kept my last drop of water to reanimate you. Thank you, thank you, I said. Although my thirst was only partially quenched, yet some strength had returned. The muscles of my throat, until then contracted, now relaxed again, and the inflammation of my lips abated somewhat, and I was now able to speak. Let us see. I said. We have now but one thing to do. We have no water. We must go back." While I spoke, my uncle avoided looking at me. He hung his head down, his eyes avoided mine. "'We must return!' I exclaimed vehemently. "'We must go back on our way to Snaffel. May God give us strength to climb up that crater again!' "'Return,' said my uncle as if he was rather answering himself than me. Yes, return, without the loss of a minute." A long silence followed. "'So then, Axel,' replied the professor ironically, "'you have found no courage or energy in these few drops of water?' "'Courage?' "'I see you just as feeble-minded as you were before, and still expressing only despair.' What sort of a man was this I had to do with, and what schemes was he now revolving in his fearless mind? What? You won't go back? Should I renounce this expedition just when we have the fairest chance of success? Never. Then must we resign ourselves to destruction? No, Axel, no. Go back. Hans will go with you. Leave me to myself. Leave you here? Leave me, I tell you. I have undertaken this expedition. I will carry it out to the end, and I will not return. Go, Axel, go!" My uncle was in a high state of excitement. His voice, which had for a moment been tender and gentle, had now become hard and threatening. He was struggling with gloomy resolutions against impossibilities. I would not leave him in this bottomless abyss and on the other hand the instinct of self-preservation prompted me to fly. The guide watched this scene with his usual phlegmatic unconcern. Yet he understood perfectly well what was going on between his two companions. The gestures themselves were sufficient to show that we were each bent on taking a different road, but Hans seemed to take no part in a question upon which depended his life. He was ready to start at a given signal, or to stay if his master so willed it. How I wished at this moment I could have made him understand me! My words, my complaints, my sorrow would have had some influence over that frigid nature. Those dangers which our guide could not understand I could have demonstrated and proved to him. Together we might have overruled the obstinate professor. 
If it were needed, we might perhaps have compelled him to regain the heights of Snefell. I drew near to Hans. I placed my hand upon his. He made no movement. My parted lips sufficiently revealed my sufferings. The Icelander slowly moved his head, and calmly pointing to my uncle said, "'Master!' "'Master!' I shouted. "'You madman! No, he is not the master of our life! We must fly! We must drag him! Do you hear me? Do you understand?' I had seized Hans by the arm. I wished to oblige him to rise. I strove with him. My uncle interposed. "'Be calm, Axel. You will get nothing from that immovable servant. Therefore, listen to my proposal.' I crossed my arms, and confronted my uncle boldly. "'The want of water,' he said, "'is the only obstacle in our way. In this eastern gallery made up of lavas, schists, and coal, we have not met with a single particle of moisture. Perhaps we shall be more fortunate if we follow the western tunnel.' I shook my head incredulously. "'Hear me to the end,' the professor went on with a firm voice. "'Whilst you were lying there motionless, I went to examine the conformation of that gallery. It penetrates directly downward, and in a few hours it will bring us to the granite rocks. There we must meet with abundant springs. The nature of the rock assures me of this, and instinct agrees with logic to support my conviction. Now this is my proposal.' When Columbus asked of his ship's crews for three days more to discover a new world, those crews, disheartened and sick as they were, recognized the justice of the claim, and he discovered America. I am the Columbus of this netherworld, and I only ask for one more day. If in a single day I have not met with the water that we want, I swear to you we will return to the surface of the earth. In spite of my irritation, I was moved with these words, as well as with the violence my uncle was doing to his own wishes in making so hazardous a proposal. "'Well,' I said, "'do as you will, and God reward your superhuman energy. You have now but a few hours to tempt fortune. Let us start.'" End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22 Total Failure of Water. This time the descent commenced by the new gallery. Hans walked first, as was his custom. We had not gone a hundred yards when the professor, moving his lantern along the walls, cried, here are primitive rocks. Now we are in the right way. Forward!" When in its early stages the earth was slowly cooling, its contraction gave rise in its crust to disruptions, distortions, fissures, and chasms. The passage through which we were moving was such a fissure, through which at one time granite poured out in a molten state. Its thousands of windings formed an inextricable labyrinth through the primeval mass. As fast as we descended, the succession of beds forming the primitive foundation came out with increasing distinctness. Geologists consider this primitive matter to be the base of the mineral crust of the earth, and have ascertained it to be composed of three different formations, schist, gneiss, and mica schist, 
resting upon that unchangeable foundation, the granite. Never had mineralogists found themselves in so marvelous a situation to study nature in situ. But the boring machine, an insensible inert instrument, was unable to bring to the surface of the inner structure of the globe, we were able to peruse with our own eyes and handle with our own hands. Through the beds of schist, colored with delicate shades of green, ran in winding coarse threads of copper and manganese, with traces of platinum and gold. I thought, what riches are here buried at an unapproachable depth in the earth, hidden forever from the covetous eyes of the human race? These treasures have been buried at such a profound depth by the convulsions of primeval times that they run no chance of ever being molested by the pickaxe or the spade. To the schists succeeded gneiss, partially stratified, remarkable for the parallelism and regularity of its lamina, then mica schists, laid in large plates or flakes, revealing their lamellated structure by the sparkle of the white shining mica. The light from our apparatus, reflected from the small facets of quartz, shot sparkling rays at every angle, and I seemed to be moving through a diamond, within which the quickly darting rays broke across each other in a thousand flashing coruscations. About six o'clock this brilliant fed of illuminations underwent a sensible abatement of splendor, then almost ceased. The walls assumed a crystallized though somber appearance. Mica was more closely mingled with the feldspar and quartz to form the proper rocky foundations of the earth, which bears without distortion or crushing the weight of the four terrestrial systems. We were mirrored within prison walls of granite. It was eight in the evening. No signs of water had yet appeared. I was suffering horribly. My uncle strode on. He refused to stop. He was listening anxiously for the murmur of distant springs. But no, there was dead silence. And now my limbs were failing beneath me. I resisted pain and torture, that I might stop my uncle, which would have driven him to despair, for the day was drawing near to its end, and it was his last. At last I failed utterly. I uttered a cry and fell. Come to me! I am dying! My uncle retraced his steps. He gazed upon me with his arms crossed. Then these muttered words passed his lips. It's all over. The last thing I saw was a fearful gesture of rage, and my eyes closed. When I reopened them I saw my two companions motionless and rolled up in their coverings. Were they asleep? As for me, I could not get one moment's sleep. I was suffering too keenly, and what embittered my thoughts was that there was no remedy. My uncle's last words echoed painfully in my ears, It's all over. For in such a fearful state of debility it was madness to think of ever reaching the upper world again. We had above us a league and a half of terrestrial crust. The weight of it seemed to be crushing down upon my shoulders. I felt weighed down, and I exhausted myself with imaginary violent exertions to turn round upon my granite couch. A few hours passed away. A deep silence reigned around us, the silence of the grave. No sound could reach us through walls, the thinnest of which were five miles thick. Yet in the midst of my stupefaction I seemed to be aware of a noise. It was dark down the tunnel, 
but I seemed to see the Icelander vanishing from our sight with the lamp in his hand. Why was he leaving us? Was Hans going to forsake us? My uncle was fast asleep. I wanted to shout, but my voice died upon my parched and swollen lips. The darkness became deeper, and the last sound died away in the far distance. "'Hans has abandoned us!' I cried. "'Hans! Hans!' But these words were only spoken within me. They went no farther. Yet after the first moment of terror I felt ashamed of suspecting a man of such extraordinary faithfulness. Instead of ascending he was descending the gallery. An evil design would have taken him up, not down. This reflection restored me to calmness, and I turned to other thoughts. None but some weighty motive could have induced so quiet a man to forfeit his sleep. Was he on a journey of discovery? Had he, during the silence of the night, caught a sound, a murmuring of something in the distance, which had failed to affect my hearing? End of chapter 22「Chapter twenty three of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty three Water Discovered. For a whole hour I was trying to work out in my delirious brain the reasons which might have influenced this seemingly tranquil huntsman. The absurdest notions ran in utter confusion through my mind. I thought madness was coming on. But at last a noise of footsteps was heard in the dark abyss. Hans was approaching. A flickering light was beginning to glimmer on the wall of our darksome prison. Then it came out full at the mouth of a gallery. Hans appeared. He drew close to my uncle, laid his hand upon his shoulder, and gently woke him. My uncle rose up. "'What is the matter?' he asked. "'Walton,' replied the huntsman. No doubt, under the inspiration of intense pain, everybody becomes endowed with the gift of diverse tongues. I did not know a word of Danish, yet instinctively I understood the word he had uttered. "'Water! Water!' I cried, clapping my hands and gesticulating like a madman. "'Water!' repeated my uncle. "'Var!' he asked in Icelandic. "'Nedat!' replied Hans. "'Where? Down below!' I understood it all. I seized the hunter's hands and pressed them while he looked on me without moving a muscle of his countenance. The preparations for our departure were not long in making and we were soon on our way down a passage inclining two feet and seven. In an hour we had gone a mile and a quarter, and descended two thousand feet. Then I began to hear distinctly quite a new sound of something running within the thickness of the granite wall, a kind of dull, dead rumbling, like distant thunder. During the first part of our walk, not meeting with the promised spring, I felt my agony returning but then my uncle acquainted me with the cause of the strange noise. "'Hans was not mistaken,' he said. "'What you hear is the rushing of a torrent.' "'A torrent?' I exclaimed. "'There can be no doubt. A subterranean river is flowing around us.' We hurried forward in the greatest excitement. I was no longer sensible of my fatigue. This murmuring of waters close at hand was already refreshing me. 
it was audibly increasing. The torrent, after having for some time flowed over our heads, was now running within the left wall, roaring and rushing. Frequently I touched the wall, hoping to feel some indications of moisture. But there was no hope here. Yet another half-hour, another half-league was passed. Then it became clear that the hunter had gone no farther. Guided by an instinct peculiar to mountaineers, he had, as it were, felt this torrent through the rock. But he had certainly seen none of the precious liquid. He had drunk nothing himself. Soon it became evident that if we continued our walk we should widen the distance between ourselves and the stream, the noise of which was becoming fainter. We returned. Hans stopped where the torrent seemed closest. I sat near the wall, while the waters were flowing past me at a distance of two feet with extreme violence. But there was a thick granite wall between us and the object of our desires. Without reflection, without asking if there were any means of procuring the water, I gave way to a movement of despair. Hans glanced at me with, I thought, a smile of compassion. He rose and took the lamp. I followed him. He moved towards the wall. I looked on. He applied his ear against the dry stone and moved it slowly to and fro, listening intently. I perceived at once that he was examining to find the exact place where the torrent could be heard the loudest. He met with that point on the left side of the tunnel, at three feet from the ground. I was stirred up with excitement. I hardly dared guess what the hunter was about to do, but I could not but understand, and applaud and cheer him on when I saw him lay hold of the pickaxe to make an attack upon the rock. "'We are saved!' I cried. "'Yes!' cried my uncle, almost frantic with excitement. "'Hans is right! Capital fellow! Who but he would have thought of it!' "'Yes, who but he!' Such an expedient, however simple, would never have entered into our minds. True, it seemed most hazardous to strike a blow of the hammer in this part of the earth's structure. Suppose some displacement should occur and crush us all. Suppose the torrent, bursting through, should drown us in a sudden flood. There was nothing vain in these fancies. But still no fears of falling rocks or rushing floods could stay us now. And our thirst was so intense that, to satisfy it, we would have dared the waves of the North Atlantic. Hans set about the task which my uncle and I together could not have accomplished. If our impatience had armed our hands with power, we should have shattered the rock into a thousand fragments. Not so, Hans. Full of self-possession, he calmly wore his way through the rock with a steady succession of light and skillful strokes. Working through an aperture six inches wide at the outside, I could hear a louder noise of flowing waters, and I fancied I could feel the delicious fluid refreshing my parched lips. The pick had soon penetrated two feet into the granite partition, and our man worked for above an hour. I was in an agony of impatience. My uncle wanted to employ stronger measures, and I had some difficulty in dissuading him. Still, he had just taken a pickaxe in his hand, when a sudden hissing was heard, and a jet of water spurted out with violence against the opposite wall. Hans, almost thrown off his feet by the violence of the shock, uttered a cry of grief and disappointment, of which I soon understood the cause, when plunging my hands into the spouting torrent I withdrew them in haste, for the water was scalding hot. 
The water is at the boiling point, I cried. Well, never mind, let it cool, my uncle replied. The tunnel was filling with steam, whilst a stream was forming which by degrees wandered away into the subterranean windings, and soon we had the satisfaction of swallowing our first draught. Could anything be more delicious than the sensation that our burning intolerable thirst was passing away, and leaving us to enjoy comfort and pleasure? But where was this water from? No matter. It was water, and though still warm, it brought life back to the dying. I kept drinking without stopping, and almost without tasting. At last, after a most delightful time of reviving energy, I cried, "'Why, this is a Calibiate spring!' "'Nothing could be better for the digestion,' said my uncle. "'It is highly impregnated with iron. It will be as good for us as going to the spa or to Toplitz. "'Well, it is delicious.' "'Of course it is. Water should be, found six miles underground. It has an inky flavour, which is not at all unpleasant.' What a capital source of strength Hans has found for us here! We will call it after his name." "'Agreed,' I cried. And Hans Bach it was from that moment. Hans was none the prouder. After a moderate draught he went quietly into a corner to rest. "'Now,' I said, "'we must not lose this water.' "'What is the use of troubling ourselves?' my uncle replied. "'I fancy it will never fail.' Never mind, we cannot be sure. Let us fill the water-bottle and our flasks, and then stop up the opening." My advice was followed so far as getting in a supply, but the stopping up of the hole was not so easy to accomplish. It was in vain that we took up fragments of granite and stuffed them in with tow, we only scalded our hands without succeeding. The pressure was too great, and our efforts were fruitless. It is quite plain said I, that the higher body of this water is at a considerable elevation. The force of the jet shows that." "'No doubt,' answered my uncle. "'If this column of water is thirty-two thousand feet high, that is, from the surface of the earth, it is equal to the weight of a thousand atmospheres. But I have got an idea.' "'Well?' "'Why should we trouble ourselves to stop the stream from coming out at all?' "'Because—' Well, I could not assign a reason. When our flasks are empty, where shall we fill them again? Can we tell that? No, there was no certainty. Well, let us allow the water to run on. It will flow down, and will both guide and refresh us. That is well planned, I cried. With this stream for our guide, there is no reason why we should not succeed in our undertaking. Ah, my boy, you agree with me now cried the professor, laughing. "'I agree with you most heartily. Well, let us rest a while, and then we will start again.' I was forgetting that it was night. The chronometer soon informed me of that fact, and in a very short time, refreshed and thankful, we all three fell into a sound sleep. End of chapter 23 Chapter Twenty Four of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four. Well said, old mole. Canst thou work in the ground so fast?
By the next day we had forgotten all our sufferings. At first I was wondering that I was no longer thirsty, and I was for asking for the reason. The answer came in the murmuring of the stream at my feet. We breakfasted and drank of this excellent calibiate water. I felt wonderfully stronger, and quite decided upon pushing on. Why should not so firmly convinced a man as my uncle, furnished with so industrious a guide as Hans, and accompanied by so determined a nephew as myself, go on to final success? Such were the magnificent plans which struggled for mastery within me. If it had been proposed to me to return to the summit of Snefell, I should have indignantly declined. Most fortunately, all we had to do was to descend. "'Let us start!' I cried, awakening by my shouts the echoes of the vaulted hollows of the earth. On Thursday at eight a.m. we started afresh. The granite tunnel winding from side to side earned us past unexpected turns, and seemed almost to form a labyrinth. But on the whole its direction seemed to be southeasterly. My uncle never ceased to consult his compass to keep account of the ground gone over. The gallery dipped down a very little way from the horizontal, scarcely more than two inches in a fathom, and the stream ran gently murmuring at our feet. I compared it to a friendly genius guiding us underground, and caressed with my hand the soft naiad, whose comforting voice accompanied our steps. With my reviving spirits these mythological notions seemed to come unbidden. As for my uncle, he was beginning to storm against the horizontal road. He loved nothing better than a vertical path. But this way seemed indefinitely prolonged, and instead of sliding along the hypotenuse as we were now doing, he would willingly have dropped down the terrestrial radius. But there was no help for it, and as long as we were approaching the center at all we felt that we must not complain. From time to time a steeper path appeared. Our naiad then began to tumble before us with a hoarser murmur and we went down with her to a greater depth. On the whole, that day and the next we made considerable way horizontally, very little vertically. On Friday evening, the 10th of July, according to our calculations, we were thirty leagues southeast of Reykjavik, and at a depth of two leagues and a half. At our feet there now opened a frightful abyss. My uncle, however, was not to be daunted, and he clapped his hands at the steepness of the descent. This will take us a long way," he cried, and without much difficulty, for the projections in the rock form quite a staircase. The ropes were so fastened by Hans as to guard against accident, and the descent commenced. I can hardly call it perilous, for I was beginning to be familiar with this kind of exercise. This well, or abyss, was a narrow cleft in the mass of the granite, called by geologists a fault, and caused by the unequal cooling of the globe of the earth. If it had at one time been a passage for eruptive matter thrown out by Snefell, I still could not understand why no trace was left of its passage. We kept going down a kind of winding staircase, which seemed almost to have been made by the hand of man. Every quarter of an hour we were obliged to halt, to take a little necessary repose and restore the action of our limbs. We then sat down upon a fragment of rock, and we talked as we ate and drank from the stream. Of course, down this fault the Hansbach fell in a cascade, and lost some of its volume. But there was enough and to spare to slake our thirst. Besides, 
when the incline became more gentle, it would of course resume its peaceable course. At this moment it reminded me of my worthy uncle, in his frequent fits of impatience and anger, while below it ran with the calmness of the Icelandic hunter. On the 6th and 7th of July we kept following the spiral curves of this singular well, penetrating an actual distance no more than two leagues, but being carried to a depth of five leagues below the level of the sea. But on the 8th, about noon, the fault took towards the southeast a much gentler slope, one of about forty-five degrees. Then the road became monotonously easy. It could not be otherwise, for there was no landscape to vary the stages of our journey. On Wednesday the 15th we were seven leagues underground, and had travelled fifty leagues away from Snaffell. Although we were tired, our health was perfect, and the medicine-chest had not yet had occasion to be opened. My uncle noted every hour the indications of the compass, the chronometer, the aneroid, and the thermometer, the very same which he has published in his scientific report of our journey. It was therefore not difficult to know exactly our whereabouts. When he told me that we had gone fifty leagues horizontally, I could not repress an exclamation of astonishment at the thought that we had now long left Iceland behind us. "'What is the matter?' he cried. "'I was reflecting that, if your calculations are correct, we are no longer under Iceland. Do you think so?' "'I am not mistaken,' I said, and examining the map, I added, "'We have passed Cape Portland, and those fifty leagues bring us under the wide expanse of the ocean.' "'Under the sea!' my uncle repeated, rubbing his hands with delight. "'Can it be?' I said. "'Is the ocean spread above our heads?' "'Of course, Axel. What can be more natural? At Newcastle are there not coal-mines extending far under the sea?' It was all very well for the professor to call this so simple, but I could not feel quite easy at the thought that the boundless ocean was rolling over my head. And yet it really mattered very little whether it was the plains and mountains that covered our heads, or the Atlantic waves as long as we were arched over by solid granite. And besides, I was getting used to this idea. For the tunnel, now running straight, now winding as capriciously in its inclines as in its turnings, but constantly preserving its south-easterly direction, and always running deeper, was gradually carrying us to very great depths indeed. Four days later, Saturday the 18th of July in the evening, we arrived at a kind of vast grotto and here my uncle paid Hans his weekly wages, and it was settled that the next day, Sunday, should be a day of rest. End of chapter 24「Chapter 25 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Five, De Profundis. I therefore awoke next day relieved from the preoccupation of an immediate start. Although we were in the very deepest of known depths, there was something not unpleasant about it. And besides, we were beginning to get accustomed to this troglodyte life. I no longer thought of sun, moon, and stars, trees, houses, and towns nor of any of those terrestrial superfluities which are necessaries of men who live upon the earth's surface. 
Being fossils, we looked upon all those things as mere jokes. The grotto was an immense apartment. Along its granite floor ran our faithful stream. At this distance from its spring the water was scarcely tepid, and we drank of it with pleasure. After breakfast the professor gave a few hours to the arrangement of his daily notes. First, said he, I will make a calculation to ascertain our exact position. I hope, after our return, to draw a map of our journey, which will be in reality a vertical section of the globe containing the track of our expedition. That will be curious, uncle, but are your observations sufficiently accurate to enable you to do this correctly? Yes. I have everywhere observed the angles and the inclines. I am sure there is no error. Let us see where we are now. Take your compass and take the direction." I looked and replied carefully, "'Southeast by east.' "'Well,' answered the professor, after a rapid calculation, "'I infer that we have gone eighty-five leagues since we started.' "'Therefore we are under mid-Atlantic?' "'To be sure we are.' and perhaps at this very moment there is a storm above, and ships over our heads are being rudely tossed by the tempest. Quite probable! And whales are lashing the roof of our prison with their tails? It may be, Axel, but they won't shake us here. But let us go back to our calculation. Here we are eighty-five leagues southeast of Sneffel, and I reckon that we are at a depth of sixteen leagues. Sixteen leagues? I cried no doubt. Why, this is the very limit assigned by science to the thickness of the crust of the earth. I don't deny it. And here, according to the law of increasing temperature, there ought to be a heat of 2,732 degrees Fahrenheit. So there should, my lad. And all this solid granite ought to be running in fusion. You see that it is not so, and that, as so often happens, facts come to overthrow theories. I am obliged to agree, but after all, it is surprising. What does the thermometer say? Twenty-seven six-tenths. Therefore the savants are wrong by two thousand seven hundred five degrees, and the proportional increase is a mistake. Therefore Humphrey Davy was right, and I am not wrong in following him. What do you say now? Nothing. In truth, I had a good deal to say. I gave way in no respect to Davy's theory. I still held to the central heat, although I did not feel its effects. I prefer to admit in truth that this chimney of an extinct volcano, lined with lavas, which are non-conductors of heat, did not suffer the heat to pass through its walls. But without stopping to look upon new arguments, I simply took up our situation such as it was. Well, admitting all your calculations to be quite correct, you must allow me to draw one rigid result therefrom. What is it? Speak freely. At the latitude of Iceland, where we now are, the radius of the earth, the distance from the center to the surface, is about 1,583 leagues, let us say in round numbers 1,600 leagues or 4,800 miles. Out of sixteen hundred leagues we have gone twelve. So you say. And these twelve at a cost of eighty-five leagues diagonally? Exactly so. In twenty days? Yes. Now, 
sixteen leagues are the hundredth part of the Earth's radius. At this rate we shall be two thousand days, or nearly five years and a half in getting to the center." No answer was vouchsafed to this rational conclusion. Without reckoning, too, that if a vertical depth of sixteen leagues can be attained only by a diagonal descent of eighty-four, it follows that we must go eight thousand miles in a southeasterly direction, so that we shall emerge from some point in the Earth's circumference instead of getting to the center. "'Confusion to all your figures, and all your hypotheses besides!' shouted my uncle in a sudden rage. "'What is the basis of them all? How do you know that this passage does not run straight to our destination? Besides, there is a precedent. What one man has done, another may do.' I hope so, but still I may be permitted. You shall have my leave to hold your tongue, Axel, but not to talk in that irrational way." I could see the awful professor bursting through my uncle's skin, and I took timely warning. Now, look at your aneroid. What does that say? It says we are under considerable pressure. Very good. So you see that, by going gradually down and getting accustomed to the density of the atmosphere, we don't suffer at all. Nothing, except a little pain in the ears. That's nothing, and you may get rid of even that by quick breathing whenever you feel the pain." Exactly so, I said, determined not to say a word that might cross my uncle's prejudices. There is even positive pleasure in living in this dense atmosphere. Have you observed how intense sound is down here? No doubt it is. A deaf man would soon learn to hear perfectly. But won't this density augment? Yes, according to a rather obscure law. It is well known that the weight of bodies diminishes as fast as we descend. You know that it is at the surface of the globe that weight is most sensibly felt, and that at the center there is no weight at all. I am aware of that. But tell me, will not air at last acquire the density of water? Of course, under a pressure of seven hundred and ten atmospheres. And how lower down still? Lower down the density will still increase. But how shall we go down, then? Why, we must fill our pockets with stones. Well, indeed, my worthy uncle, you are never at a loss for an answer. I dared venture no farther into the region of probabilities for I might presently have stumbled upon an impossibility, which would have brought the professor on the scene when he was not wanted. Still, it was evident that the air, under a pressure which might reach that of thousands of atmospheres, would at last reach the solid state, and then, even if our bodies could resist the strain, we should be stopped, and no reasonings would be able to get us on any farther. But I did not advance this argument. My uncle would have met it with his inevitable sacnosum, a precedent which possessed no weight with me. For even if the journey of the learned Icelander were really attested, there was one very simple answer, that in the sixteenth century there was neither barometer nor aneroid and therefore sacnosum could not tell how far he had gone. But I kept this objection to myself, and waited the course of events. The rest of the day was passed in calculations and in conversations. I remained a steadfast adherent of the opinions of Professor Liedenbrock, and I envied the stolid indifference of Hans, who, without going into causes and effects, 
went on with his eyes shut wherever his destiny guided him. End of chapter 25、Chapter、26 The Worst Peril of All It must be confessed that hitherto things had not gone on so badly, and that I had small reason to complain. If our difficulties became no worse, we might hope to reach our end, and to what a height of scientific glory we should then attain. I had become quite a Liedenbrock in my reasonings, seriously, I had. But would this state of things last in the strange place we had come to? Perhaps it might. For several days, steeper inclines, some even frightfully near to the perpendicular, brought us deeper and deeper into the mass of the interior of the earth. Some days we advanced nearer to the center by a league and a half, or nearly two leagues. These were perilous descents, in which the skill and marvelous coolness of Hans were invaluable to us. That unimpassioned Icelander devoted himself with incomprehensible deliberation, and, thanks to him, We crossed many a dangerous spot which we should never have cleared alone. But his habit of silence gained upon him day by day, and was infecting us. External objects produced decided effects upon the brain. A man shut up between four walls soon loses the power to associate words and ideas together. How many prisoners in solitary confinement become idiots, if not mad, for want of exercise for the thinking faculty? During the fortnight following our last conversation, no incident occurred worthy of being recorded. But I have good reason for remembering one very serious event which took place at this time, and of which I could scarcely now forget the smallest details. By the 7th of August, our successive descents had brought us to a depth of thirty leagues that is, that for a space of thirty leagues there were over our heads solid beds of rock. Ocean, continents, and towns. We must have been two hundred leagues from Iceland. On that day, the tunnel went down a gentle slope. I was ahead of the others. My uncle was carrying one of Rumkorff's lamps and I the other. I was examining the beds of granite. Suddenly, turning round, I observed that I was alone. Well, well, I thought, I have been going too fast, or Hans and my uncle have stopped on the way. Come, this won't do. I must join them. Fortunately, there is not much of an ascent. I retraced my steps. I walked for a quarter of an hour. I gazed into the darkness. I shouted. No reply. My voice was lost in the midst of the cavernous echoes which alone replied to my call. I began to feel uneasy. A shudder ran through me. Calmly, I said aloud to myself, I am sure to find my companions again. There are not two roads. I was too far ahead. I will return. For half an hour I climbed up. I listened for a call, and in that dense atmosphere a voice could reach very far. But there was a dreary silence in all that long gallery. I stopped. I could not believe that I was lost. I was only bewildered for a time, not lost. I was sure I should find my way again. Come, I repeated, 
since there is but one road, and they are on it, I must find them again. I have but to ascend still. Unless, indeed, missing me, and supposing me to be behind, they too should have gone back. But even in this case I have only to make the greater haste. I shall find them, I am sure." I repeated these words in the fainter tones of a half-convinced man. Besides, to associate even such simple ideas with words and reason with them was a work of time. A doubt then seized upon me. Was I indeed in advance when we became separated? Yes, to be sure I was. Hans was after me, preceding my uncle. He had even stopped for a while to strap his baggage better over his shoulders. I could remember this little incident. It was at that very moment that I must have gone on. Besides, I thought, have not I a guarantee that I shall not lose my way, a clue in the labyrinth that cannot be broken, my faithful stream? I have but to trace it back, and I must come upon them." This conclusion revived my spirits, and I resolved to resume my march without loss of time. How I then bless my uncle's foresight in preventing the hunter from stopping up the hole in the granite! This beneficent spring, after having satisfied our thirst on the road, would now be my guide among the windings of the terrestrial crust. Before starting afresh I thought a wash would do me good. I stooped to bathe my face in the Hansbach. To my stupefaction and utter dismay my feet trod only—the rough dry granite. The stream was no longer at my feet. End of chapter 26「Twenty-seven, A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27 Lost in the Bowels of the Earth To describe my despair would be impossible. No words could tell it. I was buried alive, with the prospect before me of dying of hunger and thirst. Mechanically I swept the ground with my hands. How dry and hard the rock seemed to me! But how had I left the course of the stream? For it was a terrible fact that it no longer ran at my side. Then I understood the reason of that fearful silence, when for the last time I listened to hear if any sound from my companions could reach my ears. At the moment when I left the right road I had not noticed the absence of the stream. It is evident that at that moment a deviation had presented itself before me, whilst the Hansbach, following the caprice of another incline, had gone with my companions away into unknown depths. How was I to return? There was not a trace of their footsteps or of my own, for the foot left no mark upon the granite floor. I racked my brain for a solution of this impracticable problem. One word described my position lost. Lost at an immeasurable depth. Thirty leagues of rock seemed to weigh upon my shoulders with a dreadful pressure. I felt crushed. I tried to carry back my ideas to things on the surface of the earth. I could scarcely succeed. Hamburg, the house in the Königstrasse, my poor Grauben, all that busy world underneath which I was wandering about, was passing in rapid confusion before my terrified memory. 
I could revive with vivid reality all the incidents of our voyage—Iceland, Monsieur Fridrikson, Snaffel. I said to myself that, if in such a position as I was in now, I was fool enough to cling to one glimpse of hope, it would be madness, and that the best thing I could do was to despair. What human power could restore me to the light of the sun, by rending asunder the huge arches of rock which united over my head, buttressing each other with impregnable strength? Who could place my feet on the right path, and bring me back to my company? Oh, my uncle! burst from my lips in the tone of despair. It was my only word of reproach, for I knew how much he must be suffering in seeking me wherever he might be. When I saw myself thus far removed from all earthly help, I had recourse to heavenly succour. The remembrance of my childhood, the recollection of my mother, whom I had only known in my tender early years, came back to me, and I knelt in prayer imploring for the divine help of which I was so little worthy. This return of trust in God's providence allayed the turbulence of my fears, and I was enabled to concentrate upon my situation all the force of my intelligence. I had three days' provisions with me and my flask was full, but I could not remain alone for long. Should I go up or down? Up, of course, up continually. I must thus arrive at the point where I had left the stream, that fatal turn in the road. With the stream at my feet I might hope to regain the summit of Snaffel. Why had I not thought of that sooner? Here was evidently a chance of safety. The most pressing duty was to find out again the course of the Hansbach. I rose, and leaning upon my iron-pointed stick I ascended the gallery. The slope was rather steep. I walked on without hope, but without indecision, like a man who has made up his mind. For half an hour I met with no obstacle. I tried to recognize my way by the form of the tunnel, by the projections of certain rocks, by the disposition of the fractures. But no particular sign appeared, and I soon saw that this gallery could not bring me back to the turning point. It came to an abrupt end. I struck against an impenetrable wall and fell down upon the rock. Unspeakable despair then seized upon me. I lay overwhelmed, aghast. My last hope was shattered against this granite wall. Lost in this labyrinth, whose windings crossed each other in all directions, it was no use to think of flight any longer. Here I must die the most dreadful of deaths. And, strange to say, the thought came across me that, when some day my petrified remains should be found thirty leagues below the surface in the bowels of the earth, the discovery might lead to grave scientific discussions. I tried to speak aloud, but hoarse sounds alone passed my dry lips. I panted for breath. In the midst of my agony a new terror laid hold of me. In falling my lamp had got wrong. I could not set it right, and its light was paling and would soon disappear altogether. I gazed painfully upon the luminous current growing weaker and weaker in the wire-coil. A dim procession of moving shadows seemed slowly unfolding down the darkening walls. I scarcely dared to shut my eyes for one moment, for fear of losing the least glimmer of this precious light. Every instant 
it seemed about to vanish and the dense blackness to come rolling in palpably upon me. One last trembling glimmer shot feebly up. I watched it in trembling and anxiety. I drank it in as if I could preserve it, concentrating upon it the full power of my eyes, as upon the very last sensation of light which they were ever to experience. And the next moment I lay in the heavy gloom of deep, thick, unfathomable darkness. A terrible cry of anguish burst from me. Upon earth, in the midst of the darkest night, light never abdicates its functions altogether. It is still subtle and diffusive, but whatever little there may be, the eye still catches that little. Here there was not an atom. The total darkness made me totally blind. Then I began to lose my head. I arose with my arms stretched out before me, attempting painfully to feel my way. I began to run wildly, hurrying through the inextricable maze, still descending, still running through the substance of the earth's thick crust, a struggling denizen of geological faults, crying, shouting, yelling, soon bruised by contact with the jagged rock, falling and rising again bleeding, trying to drink the blood which covered my face, and even waiting for some rock to shatter my skull against. I shall never know whither my mad career took me. After the lapse of some hours, no doubt exhausted, I fell like a lifeless lump at the foot of the wall and lost all consciousness. End of chapter 27Chapter 28 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28 The Rescue in the Whispering Gallery When I returned to partial life, my face was wet with tears. How long that state of insensibility had lasted, I cannot say. I had no means now of taking account of time. Never was solitude equal to this, never had any living being been so utterly forsaken. After my fall I had lost a good deal of blood. I felt it flowing over me. Ah, how happy I should have been could I have died, and if death were not yet to be gone through! I would think no longer. I drove away every idea, and conquered by my grief, I rolled myself to the foot of the opposite wall. Already I was feeling the approach of another faint, and was hoping for complete annihilation, when a loud noise reached me. It was like the distant rumble of continuous thunder, and I could hear its sounding undulations rolling far away into the remote recesses of the abyss. Whence could this noise proceed? It must be from some phenomenon proceeding in the great depths amidst which I lay helpless. Was it an explosion of gas? Was it the fall of some mighty pillar of the globe? I listened still. I wanted to know if the noise would be repeated. A quarter of an hour passed away. Silence reigned in this gallery. I could not hear even the beating of my heart. Suddenly my ear, resting by chance against the wall, caught, or seemed to catch, certain vague, indescribable, distant, articulate sounds as of words. This is a delusion, I thought. But it was not. Listening more attentively, 
I heard in reality a murmuring of voices. But my weakness prevented me from understanding what the voices said. Yet it was language, I was sure of it. For a moment I feared the words might be my own, brought back by the echo. Perhaps I had been crying out unknown to myself. I closed my lips firmly and laid my ear against the wall again. Yes, truly, someone is speaking. Those are words. Even a few feet from the wall I could hear distinctly. I succeeded in catching uncertain, strange, undistinguishable words. They came as if pronounced in low murmured whispers. The word forlorad was several times repeated in a tone of sympathy and sorrow. Help! I cried with all my might. Help! I listened. I watched in the darkness for an answer, a cry, a mere breath of sound, but nothing came. Some minutes passed. A whole world of ideas had opened in my mind. I thought that my weakened voice could never penetrate to my companions. It is they, I repeated. What other men can be thirty leagues underground? I again began to listen. Passing my ear over the wall from one place to another, I found the point where the voices seemed to be best heard. The word Forlorad again returned, then the rolling of thunder which had roused me from my lethargy. No, I said, no, it is not through such a mass that a voice can be heard. I am surrounded by granite walls, and the loudest explosion could never be heard here. This noise comes along the gallery. There must be here some remarkable exercise of acoustic laws. I listened again, and this time, yes, this time, I did distinctly hear my name pronounced across the wide interval. It was my uncle's own voice. He was talking to the guide, and forlorad is a Danish word. Then I understood it all. To make myself heard, I must speak along this wall, which would conduct the sound of my voice just as a wire conducts electricity. But there was no time to lose. If my companions moved but a few steps away, the acoustic phenomenon would cease. I therefore approached the wall and pronounced these words as clearly as possible. Uncle Liedenbrock! I waited with the deepest anxiety. Sound does not travel with great velocity. Even increased density air has no effect upon its rate of traveling, it merely augments its intensity. Seconds, which seemed ages, passed away, and at last these words reached me. Axel, Axel, is it you? Yes, yes, I replied. My boy, where are you? Lost in the deepest darkness. Where is your lamp? It is out. And the stream? Disappeared. Axel, Axel, take courage. Wait, I am exhausted. I can't answer. Speak to me. Courage, resumed my uncle. Don't speak. Listen to me. We have looked for you up the gallery and down the gallery. Could not find you. I wept for you, my poor boy. At last, supposing you were still on the Hansbach, we fired our guns. Our voices are audible to each other, but our hands cannot touch. But don't despair, Axel. 
it is a great thing that we can hear each other." During this time I have been reflecting. A vague hope was returning to my heart. There was one thing I must know to begin with. I placed my lips close to the wall, saying, "'My uncle!' "'My boy!' came to me after a few seconds. "'We must know how far we are apart.' "'That is easy.' You have your chronometer? Yes. Well, take it. Pronounce my name, noting exactly the second when you speak. I will repeat it as soon as it shall come to me, and you will observe the exact moment when you get my answer. Yes, and half the time between my call and your answer will exactly indicate that which my voice would take in coming to you. Just so, my uncle. Are you ready? Yes. Now, attention, I am going to call your name." I put my ear to the wall, and as soon as the name Axel came, I immediately replied, Axel, then waited. Forty seconds, said my uncle. Forty seconds between the two words. So, the sound takes twenty seconds in coming. Now, at the rate of 1,120 feet in a second, this is 22,400 feet, or four miles and a quarter nearly." Four miles and a quarter? I murmured. It will soon be over, Axel. Must I go up or down? Down. For this reason. We are in a vast chamber, with endless galleries. Yours must lead into it for it seems as if all the clefts and fractures of the globe radiated round this vast cavern. So, get up and begin walking. Walk on, drag yourself along, if necessary, slide down the steep places, and at the end you will find us ready to receive you. Now, begin moving." These words cheered me up. "'Good-bye, uncle,' I cried. "'I am going.' There will be no more voices heard when once I have started. So, good-bye." "'Good-bye, Axel. Au revoir.' These were the last words I heard. This wonderful underground conversation, carried on with a distance of four miles and a quarter between us, concluded with these words of hope. I thanked God from my heart for it was he who had conducted me through those vast solitudes to the point where, alone of all others perhaps, the voices of my companions could have reached me. This acoustic effect is easily explained on scientific grounds. It arose from the concave form of the gallery and the conducting power of the rock. There are many examples of this propagation of sounds which remain unheard in the intermediate space. I remember that a similar phenomenon has been observed in many places amongst others on the eternal surface of the gallery of the Dome of St. Paul's in London, and especially in the midst of the curious caverns among the quarries near Syracuse, the most wonderful of which is called Dionysius' ear. These remembrances came into my mind, and I clearly saw that since my uncle's voice really reached me, there could be no obstacle between us. Following the directions by which the sound came, of course I should arrive in his presence if my strength did not fail me. I therefore rose. I rather dragged myself than walked. The slope was rapid, and I slid down. Soon the swiftness of the descent increased horribly, and threatened to become a fall. 
I no longer had the strength to stop myself. Suddenly there was no ground under me. I felt myself revolving in air, striking and rebounding against the craggy projections of a vertical gallery, quite a well. My head struck against a sharp corner of the rock, and I became unconscious. End of chapter 28